Section 29 of The Great Events, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 1, edited by Charles F. Horn, Rosita Johnson, and John Rudd. Section 29. Rise of Confucius. The Chinese Sage, B.C. 550, R.K. Douglas. Confucius is the Latinized name of Kung Fu Zi, or Master Kung, whose work in China did much to educate the people in social and civic virtues. He began as a political reformer at a time when the empire was cut up into a number of petty and discontent principalities. As a practical statesman and administrator, he urged the necessity of reform upon the princes, whom one after another he served. His advice was invariably disregarded, and, as he said, no intelligent ruler arose in his time. His great maxims of submission to the emperor or supreme head of the state he based on the analogous duty of filial obedience in the household and his very spirit of piety prevented him from taking independent measures for redressing the evils and oppressions of his distracted country. His moral teachings are not based on any specific religious foundation, but they have become the settled code of Chinese life, of which submissiveness to authority, industry, frugality, and fair dealing as prescribed by Confucian's ethics are general characteristics. The political doctrines of this great reformer were eventually adopted, and his teaching and example brought about peaceful and gradual, but complete revolution in the Chinese Empire, whose consolidation into a simple kingdom was the practical result of this sage's influence. At the time of which we write, the Chinese were still clinging to the banks of the Yellow River, along which they had first entered the country, and formed within the limits of China proper a few states on either shore lying between the 33rd and the 38th parallels of latitude, and the 106th and the 119th of longitude. The royal state of Chao occupied part of the modern province of Honan. To the south of this was the powerful state of Qin, embracing the northern province of Xiangzi and part of Chile, to the south was the barbarous state of Chu, which stretched as far as the Yangtze Kiang to the east, reaching to the coast, where a number of smaller states, among which those of Chai, Lu, Wei, Song, and Qing, were the chief, and to the west of the Yellow River was the state of Qin, which was destined eventually to gain mastery over the contending principalities. On the establishment of the Chao dynasty, King Wu had apportioned these fiefships among members of his family, his adherents, and the descendants of some of the ancient virtuous kings. Each prince was empowered to administer his government as he pleased so long as he followed to the general lines indicated by history and in the event of any act of aggression on the part of one state against another, the matter was to be reported to the king of the sovereign state, who was bound to punish the offender. 
It is plain that in such a system the elements of disorder must lie near the surface, and no sooner was the authority of the central state lessened by the want of ability shown by the successors of King Wu, Qin and Kang, than constant strife broke out between the several chiefs. The hand of every man was against his neighbor, and the smaller states suffered the usual fate under like circumstances of being encroached upon and absorbed, notwithstanding their appeals for help to their common sovereign. The house of Chow having been thus found wanting, the device was resorted to of appointing one of the most powerful princes as a presiding chief, who should exercise royal functions, leaving the king only the title and paraphernalia of sovereignty. In fact, the China of this period was governed and administered very much as Japan was up to about 20 years ago. For Mikado, Shogun, and ruling daimyo's Red King, presiding chief and princess, and the parallel is as nearly as possible complete. The result of the system, however, in the two countries was different. For apart from the support received by the Mikado from the belief in his heavenly origin, the insular positions of Japan prevented the possibility of the advent of elements of disorder from without, whereas the principalities of China were surrounded by semi-barbarous states, the chiefs of which were engaged in constant warfare with them. Confucius' deep spirit of loyalty to the house of Chao forbade his following in the book of history, the careers of the chauffeurs who reigned between the death of Mu in BC 946 and the accession of Ping in 770. One after another these kings rose, reigned and died, leaving each to his successor an ever-increasing heritage of war. During the reign of Xun, 827-781, a gleam of light seems to have shot through the pervading darkness. Though falling far short of the excellencies of the founders of the dynasty, he yet strove to follow, though at a long interval, the examples they had set him. And according to the Chinese belief, as an acknowledgement from heaven of his efforts in the direction of virtue, it was given him to sit upon the throne for nearly half a century. His successor, Yu, the duck, appears to even less advantage. No redeeming acts relieved the general disorder of his reign, and at the instigation of a favorite concubine, he is said to have committed acts which place him on a level with Qi and Xiao. Earthquakes, storms, and astrological portents appeared as in the dark days at the close of the He and Shan dynasties. His capital was surrounded by the barbarian allies of the prince of Xin, the father of his wife, whom he had dismissed at the request of his favorite, and in an attempt to escape he fell a victim to their weapons. With this event, the Western child dynasty was brought to a close. Here also the book of history comes to an end, and the spring and autumn annals by Confucius takes up the tale of iniquity and disorder which overspread the land. No more dreadful record of a nation's struggle can be imagined than that contained in Confucius' history. The country was torn by discord and desolated by wars. Husbandry was neglected. The peace of households was destroyed, and plunder and rapine were the watchwords of the time. Such was the state of China at the time of the birth of Confucius, B.C. 551. 
Of the parents of the sage we know but little, except that his father, Chu Langhe, was a military officer, eminent for his commanding stature, his great bravery and immense strength, and that his mother's name was Yan Jing Chai. The marriage of these couples took place when Hair was seventy years old, and the prospect, therefore, of his having an heir having been but slight. Unusual rejoicings commemorated the birth of a son, who was destined to achieve such everlasting fame. Report says that the child was born in a cave on Mang Ne, whither Jin Chai went in obedience to a vision to be confined. But this is but one of the many legends with which Chinese historians love to surround the birth of Confucius. With the same desire to glorify the sage, and in perfect good faith, they narrate how the event was heralded by strange portents and miraculous appearances. How Jinni announced to Ching Chai the honor that was in store for her, and how fairies attended at his nativity. Of the early years of Confucius, we have but scanty record. It would seem that from his childhood he showed ritualistic tendencies, and we are told that as a boy he delighted to play at the arrangement of vessels and postures of ceremony. As he advanced in years, he became an earnest student of history and looked back with love and reverence to the time when the great and good Yu and Shen reigned in, a golden age, fruitful of golden deeds. At the age of 15, he bent his mind to learning, and when he was 19 years old, he married a lady from the stage of Song. It has befallen many other great men. Confucius' married life was not a happy one, and he finally divorced his wife, not, however, before she had borne him a son. Soon after his marriage, at the instigation of poverty, Confucius accepted the offer of keeper of the stores of grain, and in the following year he was promoted to be guardian of the public fields and lands. It was while holding this later office that his son was born. And so well known and highly esteemed had he already become that the reigning duke, on hearing of the event, sent him a present of a carp. From this circumstance, the infant derived his name Le, a carp. The name of his son seldom occurs in the life of his illustrious father, and the few references we have to him are enough to show that a small share of paternal affection fell to his lot. Have you heard any lessons from your father different from what we have all heard? As an inquisitive disciple of him. No, replied Leith. He was standing alone once when I was passing through the court below with hasty steps, and said to me, Have you read the oldest? On my replying, Not yet, he added, If you do not learn the oldest, you will not be fit to converse with. Another day, in the same place and the same way, he said to me, Have you read the rules of propriety? On my replying, Not yet, he added, if you do not learn the rules of propriety, your character cannot be established. I ask one thing, said the enthusiastic disciple, and I have learned three things. I have learned about the oldest, I have learned about the rules of propriety, and I have learned that the superior man maintains a distance reserved toward his son. At the age of 22, we find Confucius released from the toils of office and devoting his time to the more congenial task of imparting instruction to a band of admiring and earnest students. With idle or stupid scholars, he would have nothing to do. I do not open the truth, he said, 
to one who is not eager after knowledge, nor do I help anyone who is not anxious to explain himself. When I have presented one corner of a subject, and the listener cannot from it learn the other three, I do not repeat my lesson. When 28 years old, Confucius studied archery, and in the following years took lessons in music from the celebrated master, Shang. At 30, he tells us, he stood firm, and about this time his fame mightily increased. Many noble youths enrolled themselves among his disciples, and on his expressing a desire to visit the imperial court of Chao to confer on the subject of ancient ceremonies with Lao Tzu, the founder of the Taoist Sang, the reigning duke placed a carriage and horses at his disposal for the journey. The extreme veneration which Confucius entertained for the founders of the Chao dynasty made the visit to Le, the capital, one of the intense interest to him. With eager delight he wandered through the temple and audience chambers, the place of sacrifices and the palace, and having completed his inspection of the position and shape of the various sacrificial and ceremonial vessels, he turned to his disciples and said, Now I understand the wisdom of the Duke of Chao, and how his house attained to imperial sway. But the principal object of his visit to Chao was to confer with Lao Tzu, and of the interview between these two very dissimilar men, we have various accounts. The Confucian writers as a rule merely mention the fact of their having met. But the admirers of Lao Tzu affirm that Confucius was very roughly handled by his more ascetic contemporary, who looked down from his somewhat higher standpoint with contempt on the great apostle of antiquity. It was only natural that Lao Tzu, who preached that stillness and self-emptiness were the highest attainable objects, should be ready to assail a man whose whole being was wrapped up in ceremonial observances and conscious well-doing. The very measured tones and considered movements of Confucius, coupled with a certain admixture of that pride, which apes humility, must have been very irritating to the metaphysically-minded treasurer. And it was eminently characteristic of Confucius that, notwithstanding the great provocation given him on this occasion, he abstained from any rejoinder. We nowhere read of his engaging in a dispute. When an opponent arose, it was in keeping with the doctrine of Confucius to retire before him. A sage, he said, will not enter a tottering state nor dwell in a disorganized one. When right principles of government prevail, he shows himself, but when they are prostrated, he remains concealed. And carrying out the same principle in private life, he invariably refused to wrangle. It was possibly in connection with this incident that Confucius drew the attention of the disciples to the metal stature of a man with a triple clasp upon his mouth, which stood in the ancestral temple of love. On the back of the stature were inscribed these words. The Asians were guarded in their speech, and like them we should avoid loquacity. Many words invite many defeats. Avoid also engaging in many businesses, for many businesses create many difficulties. Observe this, my children, said he, pointing to the inscription. These words are true, and commend themselves to our reason. Having gained all the information they desired in Chao, 
he returned to Lu, where pupils flocked to him until we are told he was surrounded by an admiring company of 3,000 disciples. His stay in Lu was, however, of short duration, for the three principal clans of the state, those of Ji, Su, and Meng, after frequent contests between themselves, engaged in a war with the reigning duke, and overthrew his armies. Upon this, the duke took refuge in the state of Ci, whither Confucius followed him. As he passed along the road, he saw a woman weeping at the tomb, and having compassion on her, he sent his disciple, Zilu, to ask her the cause of her grief. You weep as if you had experienced sorrow upon sorrow, said Zilu. I have, said the woman. My father-in-law was killed here by a tiger, and my husband also, and now my son has met the same fate. Why then do you not remove from the place? asked Confucius. Because here there is no oppressive government, replied the woman. On hearing this answer, Confucius remarked to his disciples, My children, remember this. Oppressive government is fiercer than a tiger. Possibly Confucius was attracted to Cai by a knowledge that the music of the Emperor Shen was still preserved at the court. At all events, we are told that having heard a strain of the much-desired music on his way to the capital, he hurried on and was so ravished with the airs he heard that for three months he never tasted fresh. I did not think, said he, that music could reach such a pitch of excellence. Hearing of the arrival of the sage, the Duke of Chai, King, by a name, sent for him, and after some conversation, being minded to act the part of a patron to so distinguished a visitor, offered to make him a present of the city of Nizi with his revenues. But this Confucius declined, remarking to his disciples, A superior man will not receive rewards except for services done. I have given advice to the Duke King, but he has not followed it as yet, and now he would endow me with this place. Very far is he from understanding me. He still, however, discussed politics with the Duke, and taught him that there is good government when the prince is prince, and the minister is minister, when the father is father, and the son is son. Good, said the Duke, if indeed the prince be not prince, the minister not minister, and a son not son, although I have my revenue, can I enjoy it? Though Duke King was by no means a satisfactory pupil, many of his instincts were good, and he once again expressed a desire to pension Confucius, that he might keep him at hand. But Yan Ying, the Prime Minister, dissuaded him from his purpose. These scholars, said the minister, are impracticable and cannot be imitated. They are haughty and conceited of their own fields, so that they will not rest satisfied in inferior positions. They set a high value on all funeral ceremonies, give way to their grief, and will waste their property on great funerals, so that they would only be injurious to the common manners. This Kung Fu has a thousand peculiarities. It would take ages to exhaust all he knows about the ceremonies of going up and going down. This is not a time to examine into his rules of propriety. If you wish to employ him to change the custom of Qi, you will not be making the people your primary consideration. This reasoning had full weight with the duke, 
who the next time he was urged to follow the advice of Confucius, cut short the discussion by the remark, I am too old to adopt his doctrines. Under these circumstances, Confucius once more returned to Lu, only, however, to find that the condition of a state was still unchanged. Disorder was rife, and the reins of government were in the hands of the head of the strongest party for the time being. This was no time for Confucius to take office, and he devoted the leisure thus forced upon him to the compilation of the Book of Odes and the Book of History. But in process of time, order was once more restored, and he then felt himself free to accept the post of magistrate of the town of Chungtu, which was offered him by the Duke King. He now had the opportunity of putting his principles of government to the test, and the result partly justified his expectations. He framed rules for the support of the living and for the observation of rights for the dead. He arranged appropriate food for the old and the young, and he provided for the proper separation of men and women. And the results were, we are told, that as in the time of King Alfred, a thing dropped on the roll was not picked up. There was no fraudulent carving of vessels. Coffins were made of the ordained thickness. Graves were unmarked by mounds raised over them, and no two prices were charged in the markets. The duke, surprised at what he saw, asked the sage whether his rule of government could be applied to the whole state. Certainly, replied Confucius, and not only to the state of Lu, but to the whole empire. Forthwith, therefore, the duke made him assistant superintendent of works, and shortly afterwards appointed him minister of crime. Here again, his success was complete. From the day of his appointment, crime is said to have disappeared, and the penal laws remained a dead letter. Courage was recognized by Confucius as being one of the great virtues, and about this period we have related two instances in which he showed that he possessed both moral and physical courage to a high degree. The chief of the Ji family, being virtual possessor of the state, when the body of the exiled Duke Xiao was brought from Chai for interment, directed that it should be buried apart from the graves of his ancestors. On Confucius becoming aware of his decision, he ordered a trench to be dug round the burying ground which should enclose the new tomb. Thus, to censure a prince and signalize his fault is not according to antiquity, said he to Chi. I have caused the grave to be included in the cemetery, and I have done so to hide your disloyalty. And his action was allowed to pass unchallenged. The other instance referred to was on occasion, a few years later, of an interview between the dukes of Lu and Chai, at which Confucius was present as master of ceremonies. At his instigation, an altar was raised at the place of meeting, which was mounted by three steps, and on this the dukes ascended, and having pledged, one another proceeded to discuss a treaty of alliance. But treachery was intended on the part of the Duke of Chai, and at a given signal a band of savages advanced with speed of drum to carry off the Duke of Lu. Some such stratagem had been considered probable by Confucius, and the instant the danger became imminent, he rushed to the altar and led away the Duke. After much disorder in which Confucius took a firm and prominent part, a treaty was concluded, and even some land on the south of the river Wang, which had been taken by Tsai, was by the exertions of the stage restored to Lu. 
On this recovered territory, the people of Lu, in memory of the circumstance, built a city and called it the City of Confession. End of section 29